All we have is Christ. Jesus is my life. Well, suppose you went to a store or you read uh, in a newspaper advertisement or whatever that pro-quality um, leaf jerseys were on sale for 10 bucks. You, of course, rush to the store and you see uh, on your way to the display that there's one left. And you happen to notice that there's another person heading in that direction as well. And you arrive at the very same time. Do you grab the jersey or do you let someone else have it? I'm not asking you what you should do, I'm asking you what you would do. Or how about this? You were responsible for planning a very significant event at the church. And you put a whole bunch of work into it and did it all. And then at the end of the event, someone gets up to thank the person who put this all together and they name somebody else and not you. Does that sit well with you? We are by nature, by reminders of the fall nature, that is, selfish people. And we are selfish fundamentally because we concern ourselves about our survival. And we concern ourselves about our survival when we don't really believe in God. We also are people by nature who really like to be significant. It began right at the beginning in the, uh, of, of humankind. You will be like God. We weren't satisfied just to be like him. We actually wanted to rob him of his glory. We wanted his glory. These two things, significance and survival or security, are what drives and moves people. It becomes very, very unattractive in the Christian life because both of these things are symbols of people whose lives are not uh, following after God or not trusting in God. As we continue on in the journey of the life of the disciples in Mark chapter 9, we find that these two lessons in particular are going to be, are going to be critical to their walk with Christ fixated on survival, fixated on selfishness, fixated on significance, living selfishly, demonstrating a decided lack of trust in God. And the collateral damage to all of this is what breaks friendships and causes wars and separates families, and it was spilling out all over the disciples' lives. They were out on a hike with the Lord, moving from the region of Dan down through to Galilee. Ultimately, their destination was going to be Capernaum. They were keeping a low profile because Jesus was sensing that they needed a lot more Jesus time by themselves, and they sure did. They needed space for teaching. The guys were basically in their final exams because this was likely in the last couple or three weeks that they were going to be with Christ while he was here on earth. And they were going to be tasked with carrying the payload of the gospel to the world. 
And as you study their lives in the last few weeks here, you're realizing that, that these guys need to cram because they're not ready. They're not even close to ready. But as we look at this, it becomes a mirror to our own lives, frankly. For a third time, and we're in Mark chapter 9, by the way, going to be looking at the text in a moment, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 50. For the third time, Jesus runs Easter weekend by them. He states to them in verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed or more literally handed over. And if you understand the, the uh, nuance of the verb, it is intentionally handed over. The Son of Man is going to be handed over into the hands of men. Not an accident, not random, but the plan of God, the redemption plan of God is being laid out for these guys in the language of Isaiah 53 in many ways. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. And it says here, but they did not understand, and they were afraid to ask him about it. I'm not sure what they didn't understand or what they didn't get, but I suspect that there's a couple of possibilities. Either they wanted to just live in denial. We don't want to hear this. This sounds too awful to us. Or they didn't fully understand what it meant to, that he would be killed and rise again. How could the Messiah be killed? Or they were afraid to ask him for fear of getting a lecture like Peter got just a few days before. We really don't know why, they, why this description, but Mark feels it's important to put this down. Here we have Jesus emptying his heart, and they are fighting, as we find out, for their egos, because they apparently had taken a tremendous hit back in Caesarea Philippi when they couldn't cast out the demon. So today we're going to discover in Capernaum a few lessons for us, but in particular, there's going to be some contrasts between fragile egos or fragile faith. Which concerns Jesus most? We're going to see a contrast between status and sinning. Which concerns you most? These are questions that are going to be answered here or need to be answered by us. Because what happens is that spiritual blindness lurks in the competitive human heart. And puffed up ambition is not compatible with deny self-discipleship. And it is a lesson that is hard for us to learn. It is a lesson that is hard for us to, to embrace and let go of the reminders of the fall so that we can actually live in harmony with the redemption that we have received from Christ. So let's look at the text. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. They left that place, that place being Caesarea Philippi, which is in the northern region of Israel, in the region of Dan, and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. It's interesting, just a side note here. Um, Jesus, a level five leader by anybody's uh, standards, his style of leadership is, is selective and uncluttered. 
it has a significant contrast to often our frenetic activity as leaders. Notice that he insists upon uncluttered and uninterrupted space for discipleship. Um, so he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, or literally handed over. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what are you arguing about on the road? What, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, please Open up our hearts and our will to receive the Word of God today. Help us not to deflect the teaching away from our own hearts, but help us, Lord, to view the Word of God as a mirror that we need to gaze into today and to see if there be any lack of discipleship in us, to see if there be any area in our lives that is crowded by our selfishness or our need to be significant uh, issues of security, O oh God, I pray that we might, in fact, respond to your call in our lives to what real discipleship looks like. We know, O oh God, that you are passionate about us being disciples. You're passionate about us following the Jesus discipleship pathway. And I pray, O oh God, that we might not miss the many ways from this text that we are undercutting or undermining the discipleship lessons and discipleship advance that you want for us in our lives. I pray, O oh God, that we might um, 
repent of anything we find here that is out of line with what you are looking for in our lives. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. I want to basically um, divide this text in three and talk to you this morning about three ways from this text that that shows discipleship that Jesus endorses. Because after all, he's the one who gave us the commission to go and make disciples. That's, That's his heartbeat for us, is to be disciples and to make disciples. And so I think we ought to know what Jesus endorses. And I think we ought to know what he doesn't approve of. And this text is very, very uh, direct, I think, and helps us. Jesus in this text is talking about giving and sacrificing, and the disciples are talking about getting and competing. Jesus seems to be talking about a betrayal, and the disciples are, are all about who is the greatest. They're not in sync at all. It's, it, they're quite, in fact, quite uh, distinctly going in different directions. That's not something that any of us would ever want to be accused of in our own lives or to be responsible for. And as we look at this carefully, and we, it's easy for us to write our names in this text. We need to understand that what was happening on that day is that Jesus would have been leading his disciples in a procession from the region of the Danites down to Galilee and as was the custom of that time, when a, a great teacher was, had a following, the, they would follow virtually in a single line behind that teacher because it was totally socially unacceptable for those who were being taught to walk in parallel with the teacher as if they were also leading. They had to be behind the teacher. And so for the most part, you've got Jesus and 12 guys walking like ducks behind him, sort of, ducklings, I guess. Um, Maybe the odd uh, disciple would be beside another disciple. But they're they're bickering about who is the greatest, about which disciple. I mean, clearly they're still festering and fuming over a couple of things. One, that they couldn't cast out the demon and they were embarrassed about it. Two, that the three disciples were taken up to this great conference in the mountain with Jesus. And there's clearly something going on, tension going on between them about who who really is, who really is the greatest of us. Because, you know, groups always have to come up with, well, who's really the leader? You know, if Jesus is, he's talking about going away and leaving us and who's going to be who's going to be leading and they're probably chirping well it's probably going to be Peter and then someone's like well it can't be Peter he, he talks too much and you know well it, maybe it's James because James is James seems to be a man of quiet wisdom well maybe it's James or, or what about John no John's too young he can't be it and they're bickering way back and then then Andrew's like wait a second Peter Why would it be Peter? I'm the one who brought Peter to Jesus in the first place. Maybe I'm the one, when we're talking about disciple making, maybe I'm the one who should be the key leader. And and on and on they're bickering. And as they're bickering, anybody who bickers, I wouldn't know anything about that, but but if you do bicker, you know that it's not too long before you're not really happy with the people you're around. In fact, you stop, you don't even, you're not even liking them. You stop liking each other. So, So this is the, This is the uh, emotional atmosphere with which this little procession ends up 
at, it says, the house in Capernaum, as if we should know. And we should, because generally the house in Capernaum was Peter's house. And so they were probably chirping up, yeah, sure, of course it's Peter. We're going to Peter's house. Jesus always wants to go to Peter's house. He stays at Peter's house. He loves Peter better than the rest of us. And so they end up at Peter's house. The first thing they, they, they encounter is Jesus standing there with them, saying, what were you arguing about on the road? like, what? He heard us? Yes. Jesus, got a little tip for you all. Jesus hears everything. Not only does he hear everything, he knows what you're even thinking. So he asks them and they say nothing and the text says because they knew that he wouldn't be very impressed with the fact that they were arguing about who's the greatest. I mean, how do you tell your teacher? Well, we were arguing about who's the greatest. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody's going to, to own up to that. They're fuming at each other. They're, they're not talking. They're not even prepared to listen. And so it says here, Jesus sits down. Now, when the teacher in this culture, sat down, it was always to teach, and it was always a serious thing. He stood to ask them the question. He sat down now to get to their hearts. And he says to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be very last and the servant of all. And they're like looking at each other like, he knows. He knows what we're talking about. He knows what we were arguing about. Yes, he knows. He lays down for them discipleship principle one, which does not compete to be first. Discipleship that Jesus endorses does not compete to be first. In fact, Jesus says, hey, if you want to get in my line and be great, you want to be first? By the way, he doesn't condemn them about wanting to be first. He just says, this is what first looks like in my kingdom. Get to the back of the line. Go back where you can serve. Take the posture of service, the position of a servant. Are you, are you uh, about selfishness or are you about service? What about that question for you? Do you want ministry or do you want recognition? Do you want God's glory or do you want your own? And it's easy for us to answer the question academically. We all know the right answer to this. But it's until it happens to us. It's until we aren't picked or we aren't recognized or, or we aren't given the rightful place that we think we should have. Being first in real discipleship means you won't rush any longer to, to, be the, to be the one who is served, but rather you will see how you can be the one who could serve. This is not new to us. You, you will not be the one who rushes to make sure you benefit from personal, the personal benefits, but rather how can you help and serve someone else? Whatever for discipleship's sake 
enables you to make the most impact for God. That's what real discipleship looks like. Not, not what can make you look good or what can recognize you or you can get glory, but, but how could my life be used to make maximum impact for God? What if it were to serve in a, a, a very secretive way or a way that's not noticed? So while they're standing there, which by the way, he called the 12 to himself. You know, there were obviously more people in the house. In Jesus' teaching way, he never embarrasses them in front of others. It's a good principle. He brings them to himself and teaches them what's wrong. But evidently, there are more people in in the room, and so he builds his case for ministry by taking a little child that's in the house. He asks this little child, "Come, come here, come over here. And he has this little child stand in front of them for a second. And it says in the text that he takes this little child, having stood among them in his arms, or literally in the crook of his arm, sits this little child on his knee and, and puts him in the crook of his arm and says, this is what first place discipleship looks like. Taking this little kid and putting him on your lap and in your arms and teaching him about the greatness of Christ. A a true disciple, a first place medal winner, cares what a little child thinks about the greatness of Jesus. By accurately representing him as the one who came to serve and not be served by how you serve. This puts a whole new light on ministry to children and what God views as important, what he counts as as, as significant. And by the way, when we rush to serve each other, when we try to, when we, we scramble over each other to see who can serve, it ends the bickering, it ends the feuding, it ends the the anxiety and, 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 and anger that we have for one another. Life is so much more expansive and non-burdensome when you stop fighting for what you mistakenly think you rightfully deserve. We are creatures completely dependent on what we don't deserve. That's who we are. Nothing more. But there's more here. The, the, the word child in Aramaic translated here, and he was likely speaking to his, his disciples in Aramaic, the, the word child is also means servant. So Jesus is basically posturing a little child in front of them so they can see what servant really looks like. Servant is not somebody important or somebody who's recognized. This is a little kid in the house. Servant is someone who needs your help, who needs to be served. Servant is the one who serves. And he says here that, that, that ministry, the ministry or welcome of, to a child is the same as welcoming Jesus. When you welcome a child in the name of Christ, it's as if you're welcoming me, Jesus says. It, when you think about how important When you're thinking about recognition, when you're thinking about the significance of ministry, Jesus is saying, take the least person, 
and minister to that person in my name. And it is equivalent to ministry to me directly. Not only is it equivalent to ministry to me directly, but it's equivalent to ministering to the Father in heaven. And in John 12, 26, John writes there that, that the Father will honor the one who serves me. There's a, there's a circular blessing to this. You see, Jesus' teaching was that the emissary who was sent, the treatment of the emissary should be the same as the treatment of the one who sent them. So when we are ministering in Jesus' name and Jesus is sending people to us, whether they're children or, or the least or the lost or whoever they are, then Jesus is sending them to us. We are to treat them as if Jesus were standing in front of us himself because he is. How much more recognition do you need than that? When you allow your heart to receive this word from Christ and realize that your ministry to the person that Christ has sent to you, whether small or grown or whoever they are, is the same as ministering to Jesus himself, you don't need your name on a program. You don't need your name announced. You have reached the greatest place possible. Too often we get so busy for jockeying for the place of leadership or the place of recognition or that was supposed to be me, I was supposed to have that. Instead of, let's just get the job done, Jesus says. Who cares who gets the credit? If you need credit, go into entertainment, not ministry. If you need recognition, go into show business, not ministry. Not discipleship. Not discipleship. There's a second I notice here. And the second is this. Discipleship that Jesus endorses does not compete to be exclusive. I don't know what got into John's head here. But here after Jesus has just said this. John decides to say, teacher... We saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. I'm thinking to myself that John has no idea in terms of reading the room. Has no idea. Maybe it's his youthful zeal. I don't know what it is. Interestingly though, Peter says to Mark, Peter helped Mark write this gospel. He says to Mark, here's what happened in the house. And he says, by the way, jot down John's name beside it. Because I'm not taking the fall for this, all right? This was John. You know, so so you, you get the idea as Mark is writing this gospel that Peter's still got some residual issues with their bickering about who's, in the, who's to lead and all of that. But anyway, put John's name down. I, I, you know... If I'm, if I'm Jesus, and I, I, don't know how, I don't know what Jesus did before he re responded, but I think I'm just going to stare at John for a, a, an uncomfortable length of time. I'm just going to be like... And then I would probably have a, a, a smorgasbord of sarcasm, which I know Jesus didn't, but that's my own wicked heart. 
And, and here you've got, because you've got, and you, you stop. So Jesus is like, um, oh, okay, so you, uh, you heard about this guy who was um, doing something that you guys were unable to do, and you, you shut him down because why? And the answer is, well, because he's not one of us. And I'm, I'm pretty sure Jesus would have said, hey, don't include me in the us. And, and by the way, I'm glad he's not one of you. You guys couldn't do what he did do. And here you've got this criticism, and you've got this, hey, I'm shutting him down. He's not one of us. Are you listening, John? Are you hearing what you're actually saying? Are we, are, when, when we're out criticizing people who are serving the Lord, who aren't necessarily part of our tribe, but accomplishing some pretty cool things for God, not doing it the way we do it maybe, are we hearing ourselves? Because Jesus is. Be very careful. Our overzealous partisanship, where we're convinced that our little group is all there is, runs an ever-present um, danger of actually misjudging what's really going on, misjudging the work of God. Elijah, back centuries, was lamenting in 1 Kings chapter 19 when he was running from Jezebel and Ahab and offers this great exclamation to God, I'm being hounded and I'm the only one left who serves you. From heaven comes a response, relax, Elijah. There's 7,000 more people who haven't bent their knees to the bales. You're not all there is. God has more people. God has more people than us, yes? You don't seem too convinced. God has more people than us. And you run the danger of attributing to something that God is doing to the work of the devil. That's what the scribes did. Mark 3.22, Mark 3, they discredited the work of the Holy Spirit, actually. So Jesus really asked the question, hey, guys, is this, is this genuine concern or is this more like jealousy? When we're out there critiquing all that's going on in the world of Jesus' work, we need to ask a question of ourselves. Is this about genuine concern or is this more about jealousy? Is it more about our way and our approval or is it about right theology? If it's just about power and control, you need to know that compassion is what catches Jesus' attention. We'll see that in a moment. Now, by the way, don't ever think for a moment that by what Jesus says here in his answer, he's overlooking bad teaching or bad theology. Notice what he says. No one who does a miracle in my name 
which, by the way, oozing with irony, you guys couldn't. There's no, there's no question why Jesus frames it this way. No one who does a miracle in my name, you couldn't do a miracle in my name, can in the next moment say anything bad about me. By the way, guys, back in Caesarea Philippi, everybody was mocking us. We were a joke. You couldn't demonstrate the power of God in your lives. People were speaking bad about me because of you. This guy, on the other hand, is casting out a demon. You claim he's unauthorized. He's not one of us. He's casting out a demon, and nobody's saying anything bad about me around him. And for, who, and for whoever is not against us is for us. And again, Jesus isn't setting the, the bar of salvation, saying all you have to be is not against Jesus and therefore you're in. That's not what he's saying. Do not stop him, he says. You are witnessing Holy Spirit affirming results. Those not saying anything bad or not against Jesus. Now, here's the thing. There is a context here that Jesus is talking about that isn't exactly the same as our context right now in Oshawa. The context that he's talking about, and Mark picks this out, is a context where there's great persecution, great persecution that's about to come upon them. And in the context of persecution, it is critical that the church of Jesus Christ recognizes that since there's a great cost to serving Christ, it is unlikely that anybody who is, is serving Christ is a fake or a phony because the cost is too great. In our particular setting, there are all kinds of people who are phonies and fakes because big show Jesus stuff can make you rich. It can make you famous. And so there are lots of people who need greater scrutiny and discernment in our context. But when you are serving Christ in Saudi Arabia or Turkey or North Korea or Iran, the church of Jesus Christ literally comes down to this description People who clearly are doing things in Christ's name, clearly not talking badly about Jesus, and clearly not against Jesus, but for him. That's abnormal in a persecution context. These are your brothers and sisters, Jesus says. In fact, he goes on to expand the idea here in verse 41 by saying, I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name... Just because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. You better, he says, look for your friends in the context that you're about to be involved in. And you better know that anybody who gives you something just because you are naming the name of Christ should be considered your friend. Because those who don't love me will come for your life. They won't bring water for you. And so he tells them to be very careful, to scrutinize what they're really doing. At times of life-threatening, life when times get life-threatening, God's people need all the real friends they can find, even if not from the exact same tribe. 
There are not multiple denominations of Christianity in Saudi Arabia and Iran and, 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 and Iraq and, and Turkey and North Korea and on and on you go. They don't have the luxury of warring against each other. One church, one faith, one Christ. And Jesus is, moves them finally to the huge crux of the issue in their lives, what's really, really uh, critical in discipleship. I s assume he still has the, the little kid on his lap. And I presume that he says to them with this illustration, obvious, and if anyone, you know, you're fighting for ego and place and recognition, trying to shut down ministry outside of yourselves, listen, if anyone causes a little one to sin, it would be, would be better if that person makes a millstone necklace and dives into the sea. And the, the little one, you know, is a, is a, stands in for the one of fragile faith. The one not necessarily of our tribe, but loving the Lord Jesus Christ. You discourage or cause that one to sin, it would be better. If you haven't seen a millstone, a millstone is a, probably a four-foot diameter, maybe five-foot diameter, solid rock carved wheel that was used to crush olives, to squeeze the oil out of the olive. You use that as your first place metal and put that thing around your neck and dive into the sea, you aren't coming back. Jesus gets really pointed here. He says, you want to be in competition? How about competing vigorously against sin? That's what disciples do. Focus on the real enemy. And the real enemy to discipleship is sin. Take aim at anything that causes anybody to sin, including yourself. Those tipping point decisions whereby... If I choose this, I'll be choosing against the kingdom of God. If I choose this, I'll be choosing for the kingdom of God. It's that simple. But that profound in its results and in its destiny. I hope it hasn't escaped you that Jesus mentions hell multiple times here. Shockingly to his disciples. These are his best. This is his crack troop. This is the best these are the ones who are going on to carry the payload of the gospel, and he's warning them about hell. He's warning us today about hell. Your fragile egos, Jesus says, need to give way to concern about yours and others' fragile faith and radicalize your efforts to eliminate sin from your life because collecting sin is the entrance pass to hell. Jesus justifies or juxtaposes sin and hell. 
in a powerful way here. Many of us are domesticating sin. What I mean about that by that is we're, we're, we're treating forgiveness as if it's a daily low-dose pill, aspirin. We sin and we ask for forgiveness. We sin next day, ask for forgiveness. Listen, forgiveness is not a low-dose aspirin that takes care of your recurring sinfulness. 1 John 3, 6 makes it abundantly clear that, that no one who keeps on sinning has seen him or knows him. Jesus gets very serious with these guys. I thought they were disciples. Yes, they're disciples. But he does not ever remove the tension in any of our lives that it is possible for us to not really be followers of Christ. And our sinful lives demonstrate it. He says here, if you are sinning, if you, he covers the whole gambit. He talks about if you're, if you're sinning by handling things, then cut your hand off. If you're sinning with your eyes, then gouge your eyes out. If you're sinning with your feet because of where they take you, then cut your feet off. Does he really, does he really mean that, that we should cut off our hand and cut off our feet and cut out, cut out, gouge out our eyes? He's, getting, he's, he's actually talking... As, as strongly as he can, but, but cutting off your hand means I've got another hand to do the same thing I've been doing. Gouging out my eye, it gives me the, the, the ability to see the same things I've been seeing. Cutting off my feet gives me the opportunity to get in a wheelchair and have the wheelchair take me to where I want to go that might be sinning against God. Listen, it's all about what really is happening in our mind and in our heart. Radical Heaven-bound discipleship includes the costliest of sacrifices. Get rid of anything that steals your loyalty away from Jesus. Throw out your laptop. Throw out your television. Throw out your car. I, I don't, we can keep naming on and on. Beloved, Jesus juxtaposes our sinfulness beside hell. And he talks about hell in the most graphic of terms, where the worm does not die and the fire does not quench. It's spiritual ruination. It's, it's, it's a place of, of unrestrained horror and wickedness. Why? Because God abandons that place. The only reason that there's goodness on this earth is because God is restraining the, the reality of wickedness. But when God withdraws himself entirely so that there's no restraint on evil or wickedness, it is the description that we have of hell here, being banished from all goodness for momentary pleasures of sin. Juxtapose that. Hell and sin the, the ancients, these people who followed right after Jesus, they gave up their bodies willingly in sacrifice, gave up their lives willingly in sacrifice rather than be disloyal to Jesus. Are you ready and willing to cut off anything that steals your loyalty away from Christ? What the ancients did with their incredible sacrifices of their lives puts our 
lame excuses for trading lordship in their right place. We will trade Jesus for comfort, for ease, for entertainment, for thrills at the drop of a bucket. Finally, he says here, just here's what you need. Everyone will be salted with fire. Stay salty. What's this? Very quickly. In the Old Testament, when you brought a sacrifice, you must get rid of leaven, which he's now talking about, because leaven represented sin. He's just talked about sin. But you needed to add salt to your sacrifice because salt was a representation of your covenant with God. You were spicing up your sacrifice with the acknowledgement that you were in covenant with the living God. Jesus is saying here, you need to say no to sin. He's he's giving us the New Testament living sacrifice reality. You need to say no to sin, no to the leaven of sin, which works its way through your whole life and causes trouble in everybody else around you. And you need to make certain that you are absolutely loyal to your covenant with Jesus Christ. He is your Lord, and you wouldn't trade him for anything. That's the offering you bring to God. That's the sacrifice you bring to God. Everyone will be salted with fire. And Jesus is making the point that your covenant with Christ will come under great testing by fire so that the audience of Rome, the Roman Christians who are being persecuted as Mark brings this text, are learning the truth that the fiery trial they were going through is so that their offering and sacrifice to the Lord would be salty. It would be real. They would trade sin for the salt of their covenant with Jesus Christ every time. Because Jesus said, if you lose your saltiness, If you lose your loyalty to Jesus, if you lose the the reality of what that covenant, life-transforming, life-saving covenant with Jesus is all about, how are you going to get that back? You're willing to trade that for sin? God purges from us what is undesirable, that we might not become worthless to God and to everybody around us who's looking at us as alleged Christians, how loyal are we to Jesus? Jesus, beloved, is serious about discipleship. Are you? Father, we conclude our time having visited that house in Capernaum with you. We were invited by the Lord himself into the very drama of our redemption, our sanctification by Jesus. I pray, O Lord, that you would purge our hearts May we do whatever is radically necessary to stop sinning. That we might be totally loyal to Christ.
I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Loved followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot be addicted to recognition and being first and serve too. They're antithetical to each other. Christ has called us to do ministry, not steal his glory. The servant of the Lord who catches the eye of Jesus is that mother who takes the little child in the crook of her arms and teaches him the good ways of Jesus or her the good ways of Jesus. Or that Sunday school teacher serving in obscurity who by the model of their lives reflects the love and kindness and grace of Christ. Those are the people who catches Jesus' eye. And then believer, please know this, that Jesus never promises to rescue us from our destiny to hell if we refuse to stop sinning. Do not allow your intellectual ideas of salvation give you a false sense of security when your behavior is opposite that of a believer. Jesus says this on purpose. Interestingly, in Jesus' teachings, he concentrated his teachings about heaven with those who were lost and concentrated most of his teaching about hell with those who were supposedly his. We ought to pay attention to that. Sin kills you and ruins your destiny. Get rid of it. Radicalize your life in whatever way you have to, to be loyal to Jesus alone. And say no to those things that are choices you're making to steal you away from the kingdom of God and loyalty to Christ. Regardless of how pleasurable, how enjoyable, how innocuous they seem to be. Little bits of disloyalty crowd out your life until you find one day that you're no longer walking anywhere near Jesus. And if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will it find its way back? Father, thank you for your honest teaching to us. You do not hide from us how you really think. And I pray that we will not fool ourselves by looking into the mirror of God's word and having seen something that is not right, walk out of here without making a choice by your strength to change. I pray that you would do that in our lives, oh Lord. Move us to change, for Jesus' sake, amen. We're going to be right here at the front, pastors. We'd love some of our women who are pastors' wives, deacons' wives, can meet here in front. If you need prayer, if you would like someone to pray for you over these things today, please, please don't, don't rush away. We want to pray with you.